welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Dan Romer, an Emmy Award-nominated composer whose credits across film and television include Maniac, starring Emma Stone and Jonah Hill, Kerry Fukunaga's Beast of No Nation, also for Netflix, and my favorite animated film from last year, Pixar's Luca. In today's conversation, Dan and I discuss his beginnings as a record producer and why he chose to transition into film composing. The reasons why, following the success of his first film, the Oscar-nominated Beast of the Southern Wild, he encountered resistance from the industry and a deep dive into Dan's creative approach to scoring Pixar's Luca. The story of a friendship between a child and a sea monster in the Italian Riviera. All of this and much more. If you enjoy the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes. We'd love to ask you to support us by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Please take a moment to do it, as it allows for new listeners to discover the show. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, your creative path into film music is unconventional to say the least. You studied opera in high school before graduating SUNY Purchase in 2004, and it took nearly 10 years before your first feature. You may have entered college to pursue, among other things, record production, but when you did eventually meet Ben Zeitlin, the director of Beasts of the Southern Wild, a project we'll talk about in a moment, what were those early short film experiences together teaching you about your musical identity as a composer, and how did receiving recognition from Sundance at such an early age factor into your more seriously considering a full-time transition into film composing? Well, yeah, the beginning of me scoring films, yeah, was unconventional. I, I never really intended to be a film composer. I loved film scores. I loved music and movies, but it was never something where I thought I would be making that kind of music. What happened was when I was studying voice, I was a vocal major at LaGuardia uh, in, in New York, and I was obsessed with music theory. I was buying music theory books and, and reading them. And they had a great program over there for music theory, but I wanted to learn more. And I went to my teacher, Rob Apostle, and I said, I want to learn more music theory than I'm learning right now. And he said, well, do you want to learn classical or jazz? And I was listening to a lot of rock music that had strings in it. So I felt like classical would be a more fun route for me. So I, I said classical, and then he gave me a stack of Bach chorales. That's these, uh, this is like a tome of music theory. Bach wrote all of these four-part harmony pieces that are just incredible, and this incredible tome of, of, of knowledge. And so not even listening to these chorales, I would just sit around analyzing them. There's incredibly pretentious photos of me sitting around working on them while my other friends hang out like normal people. So I learned how to do four-part voice writing from that. And so what that translates to ultimately, I found, was writing for a string quartet for violin one, violin two, viola, cello. And so when I went to college, well, in high school and college, there were string players around at, at LaGuardia and at the conservatory. And so I started writing string quartets for songs, for songs I was writing, for songs other people were writing. And there were artists I was working with 
such as Jenny Owen Young's and Bess Rogers at SUNY Purchase, where I was writing string quartets for their music. So my last year at Purchase, my old friend Rayton Tori, we've known each other since we were seven years old. Rayton Tori asked me to score his, his senior thesis, which was a short film called Death to the Tin Man. with power, Paul Mermelstein declared himself the reincarnation of John the Baptist and tried to burn down the church. The faithful of the town fell into a persecuting frenzy. The pastor declared that the meat puppet was sent from hell to destroy them all. I said to him, I'd never scored a film before. I, I don't know how to do it. And he said, well, I had this friend named Ben Zeitlin, who I actually had met before because I'd engineered something for him before. He said, Ben knows how film music works, but doesn't really know how to make music on his own. So if I put the two of you together, maybe you guys could score the film. And so Ben and I spent 10 days working together on this film score and just like loved working together. And, you know, Ben heard, and I, well, we were talking about strings and I said, I've been writing string quartets. I know how to do this. We were listening to film music that we were listening to as references and there were all these string writing. And I said, I know how to do this, I can do it. So I started writing some string quartets for the film. We did that film together and then Zeitlin asked me to score his next short film with him called Glory at Sea. And he said that one would be pretty much 100% strings and some brass. And so we did that score together and we loved working together. And that score was sort of a blueprint for our Beast of the Southern Wild score. That score didn't have any Americana elements like fiddles or banjos or guitars. It was all strings and horns and percussion. But that score sort of paved the way for us for scoring Beast of the Southern Wild together as well. And Ben also, uh, you know, wrote and directed Beast of the Southern Wild. So yeah, we scored that film together. And as an artist, it's very easy for you to get pigeonholed. And so I kind of felt at that moment when Beast of the Southern Wild came out and people were responding to it, I felt like if I'm gonna get pigeonholed anywhere, this is a, a thing I would love to get pigeonholed for. So I moved from New York where I grew up out to LA and started pursuing film scoring full-time. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the film, which follows a six-year-old girl whose life is turned upside down by a flood in her village. And it's inspiring to think about the fact that the film started as a small Fox searchlight release and ended up with four Oscar nominations. My first quote for today, quote, When we got to Beasts of the Southern Wild, me and Ben knew our sound as a composing team. Again, we're talking about Ben, who's Ben Seitlin, the director of the movie and the co-composer. We knew it was going to be in the same world as Glory at Sea, staying away from guitar in favor of pizzicato strings, except we were going to add accordion, fiddle, and a caging band, close quote. Because of the low-budget nature of the feature score, recording it all in the garage with one microphone, mostly overdubbing different instruments, how did your experience as a mixer and an engineer allow you to maximize the quality of the recordings? And how do you think your approach to Beast of the Southern Wild would be different if you were to score the film today? Well, first I would say about mixing, I would say I was making the majority of my money, of my income, which was very low. But the majority of my income in my uh, 20s, I was making from mixing albums. It was the kind of like quickest, easiest way to make money at that point where I could mix records from like 
7 p.m. to 2 in the morning while other things weren't happening. I think it's incredibly important as a composer to know how to mix well, or at least get by on your mixing. When people ask me, what advice do you have for young composers? One of the things that I say is that they should learn how to do every part of the music making process themselves so that they, even if they're not going to do every part themselves, they understand it and hopefully are able to do whatever they need to do as an artist. The mixing, well, okay, well, yeah, I would say first of all that the entire score was recorded with two microphones, a Perlman TM1 and a Royer 121. The Royer was used on all the percussion, the Perlman TM1 was used on everything else. So you have to do a lot of processing when you are trying to make one musician sound like 50. So we had our violin viola player, Johnny Dinklage, play on some tracks, 100 violin and viola parts, you know, just doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling. And there would be long tones, there would be pizzicato parts and staccato parts all on top of each other. So it was just a massive amount of, of tracks, especially on the final cue, once there was a hush puppy. You know, you have to do certain things with compression, especially multi-band compression and reverbs and panning and a lot of automation to make one musician sound like an orchestra. I definitely feel that mixing pop music helped me a lot in figuring out how to do that. The other thing, that, there's other little tricks. I mean, one of the biggest tricks to making one musician sound like many is having that musician move around the microphone on every take. I, I do this with singing all the time. When, I'm, when I had to create a choir out of my vocal, I do one take all the way to the left of the microphone and then slowly move where I'm standing around the microphone to like eight different spots around the microphone to make it sound like I'm in a different place in the room. And then I do impressions of different singers to make myself sound different. But a musician, if, if, a, if a violin player has, let's say like three violins, that they have their main violin, their touring violin, like their live show violin that they can kind of bang around, and then like their practice violin from when they were little. If you have all three of those and you use all of them, you can kind of create a bigger sound. You're 29 at the time, Beast of the Southern Wild comes out and you move to Los Angeles. Agencies reach out, you build a team, but having scored just one feature, at least based on the industry's perspective at the time, that somehow proved less of a range in your abilities, I guess. So as far as the opportunities you wish had been offered to you right after, how did your experience differ from the way you thought you were gonna land your next feature? And before booking Beast of No Nation with Kiri Fukunaga, which by the way, it's a different movie, how did that three-year gap impact your own creative self-confidence? Yeah, I mean, you kind of, when something that you do gets a lot of recognition, it's very easy to think it's gonna be more impactful for your career than it is. It is true, when I scored Beast of the Southern Wild, there was a, a fair amount of time where I would have meetings with different people and they would say, well, we love the Beast of the Southern Wild score, but we don't want a Beast of the Southern Wild type score for our film. And I would say, well, I, you know, 
I'm more versatile than that. I can do other stuff that's not just like Beasts of the Southern Wild, you know. And and Beasts is a very it's a very like specific lo-fi weird score, you know. And I'm and I'm very proud of it. But you know, it's a very specific sounding thing. And also, I think some people weren't sure if I could score stuff without Ben Zeitlin. I think that was a concern for people. So it just took some. It just takes some time. You know, you just have to keep doing everything you can do. Some people will believe in you. Some people won't. And that's fine. And, and, and no one's at fault for not believing. It just takes time. And, you know, with film, there's just there's so many people involved. It's not like you and your friends starting a band and being like, let's, let's make music together. There's so many people involved in film and so much money involved. I'm not saying so much money for one person necessarily, but there's just so much money that changes hands over the course of a film. There's a lot of responsibilities happening. And so, yeah, it just takes a while sometimes to really get the foothold you're trying to get. Let's talk about mixing craft and responsibility. Another quote of yours, being a composer is really about delivering a specific result to someone within a set deadline, close quote. I guess, Dan, waiting for inspiration is a luxury you don't always have. And being a professional requires you to create magic out of thin air by using only your musical knowledge. As far as musical theory goes, at what point in your career did you begin to understand that much like a cinematographer chooses a lens to cover a scene in a subjective way, you could trigger also emotion by using specific musical tools by combining the right melody with the right orchestration. Well, I think that this concept for me and for anyone who writes songs is a very old concept that you've been with forever regardless of, of film or TV or anything. I mean, at a very basic level, a song is words set to a melody with chords behind it. So how different is a singer singing words with chords and melody, with, a chord, with a chord progression behind them? How different is that really from dialogue happening with some sort of instrument playing a melody and chords playing behind it, you know? I, I, obviously there's a lot of differences, but I think there's a lot of similarities too. And I think that the marriage of words and chords is something that songwriters know very well and something that film composers know very well, just in slightly different ways. I'd love to spend a generous amount of time talking about my favorite animated movie from last year, and that is Pixar's Luca. Let's talk about the evolution of the score. Quote, Enrico Casarosa and I wanted something that was more of a nod or a memory than something that felt historically accurate. He said, Dan, I want a Dan Romer score for this movie, but I want it to sound like the Italian version of it, close quote. Just for context, I know that the very first version of the story that Enrico Casarosa, he's the director, pitched to Pixar, involved an American father going back to the Italian Cinque Terre and taking along his daughter who discovers the magical roots of her grandparents. Again, quite the switch from the finished movie that we got so when it comes to instruments chosen and melodic orchestration, what elements was Enrico pointing to to identify what a Dan Romer score sounded like? And since I know at first you consider a more experimental sound, like using crunching leaves as percussion, how did the music evolve from the way you and Enrico thought you were going to score the movie to the way you actually did? Yeah, I mean, the question was how Italian did we want to get? And that was kind of the big thing we needed to figure out. And the main question I had was, are the sea monsters Italian or not? Like, they have Italian names. My initial instinct was, 
let's make the sea monsters less Italian and not have such Italian music. And then when they get into the city, into the town rather, we'll kind of pull out more Italian instrumentation. And we do that to a certain extent. There is more kind of like weird sonic stuff going on under the water. It is less Italian sounding in the water. But what we came to was that the sea monsters are Italian too. Everyone's Italian. There's nothing in this score where we're not thinking about the fact that we're in Italy. And so the first round I did had some pretty out there stuff. I was trying some pretty, some pretty wild textures. And some of them worked, some of them didn't. But then Enrico said, I think that we need to try to skew a little more Italian than this. Let's give it a try. And then so I did another round that was overly Italian. And then he said, okay, we overcorrected. Let's, let's go back. So we found a middle ground that, I, that we both thought worked really well. Come on. It's faster than he looks. Oh. You, uh, you coming? Nope. I can't do it. Never in a million years. Hey, hey, hey. I know your problem. You got a Bruno in your head. A Bruno? Yeah. I get one too sometimes. Alberto, you can't. Alberto, you're gonna die. Alberto, don't put that in your mouth. Luca, it's simple. Don't listen to stupid Bruno. Why is his name Bruno? I don't care. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Call him whatever you want. Shut him up. Say, Silencio Bruno. Silencio Bruno. Louder. Silencio Bruno. Silencio Bruno. Silencio Bruno. Silencio Bruno. Can you still hear him? Nope. Just you. Good. Now hang on. The film takes place in the 50s and 60s and is full of needle drops. And I know it all started with Enrico making you two playlists, one with Italian film scores and one with Italian songs. You spoke about immersing yourself in that musical world for as long as possible as you were starting production. Another quote of yours, the score incorporates lots of floaty water-like and pizzicato strings that fuel the music with childlike wonder. There were dreamy textures that we would only use in the water and others that we would only use in the air. Close quote. So from the tendency in Italian bass lines not to repeat two notes in a row to the use of nylon string guitar or whistling, which in this case feels thematically fitting because you can't whistle underwater, what aspects of the Italian culture were you subconsciously trying to bake into your musical DNA so that they could then make their way back into your approach to writing harmony and melody on Luca? When I make a film score that has elements of another culture's music, I try to do it through osmosis. And this is where, where the playlist came in. I just try to listen to nothing but that music for the months leading up to it and then while I'm writing so that the harmony becomes kind of second nature. Like listening to like a ton of Piovani really hammered in like what is... And, and for people listening, Piovani, we're talking about Nicola Piovani who did the score for Life is Beautiful among many other great films. He's amazing. And you know, it's so interesting because the, the differences between so many different cultures are often very subtle. And the way that music works in general is the closer you get to a country, the more music sounds like that country. And it's like, in another life, I would have loved to have been an ethnomusicologist studying why music sounds certain ways in different parts of the world. 
that's something that I've always been very interested in. And for example, with The Little Hours, which is another movie I scored that took place in Italy, but in the 1400s, I listened to nothing but music from that era. That, that was written in that era. Not, obviously not recorded. And there's rules you can learn, but learning the rules won't get you anywhere near as far as just completely living and breathing that music. And even if you're gonna make, if you're, let's say you're gonna make rock music, but you'd never heard rock music until you were 30. And then you were like, oh, I'm gonna try to make this music. I'm gonna listen to nothing but Nirvana for three months. You'd be able to make rock music, but it wouldn't be, you know, as authentic as someone who's been listening to Nirvana and like other rock bands and punk bands since they were, you know, five or whatever. So I'm just trying to get it as close as I can to understanding other cultures' music when I'm referencing them. And it was a great help having my collaborators, Josue and Lorenzo, showing me music that they grew up with. And yeah, I mean, you know, it takes a lot of collaboration with this kind of thing. I'd love to talk about the importance of themes. Themes are a powerful musical device that reminds the audience of recurring relationships in a story. And as I go through the following quote, I'm gonna slide in samples from the different ones in this movie. Quote, I wanted all three themes in Luca to musically represent the characters' personalities and harmonically fit together like puzzle pieces. All three are waltzes, all in major keys, and I wanted the freedom of hopping between all of them within a single piece of music, as if one was responding to the other. Luca's melody features large jumps between notes to represent his longing for the outside world. Alberto's theme is rousing and encouraging. And Julia's is the most classic in its Italian nature. operate on such a subconscious level for the audience? And how did writing so many melodies over the course of the story allow you to have a lot to pick and choose from by the time you scored the film finale? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely when you have themes written for a bunch of different characters and situations, it, it gets really fun recontextualizing them in a, in a big piece at the end when you get to do that. I mean, yeah, the question of why does melody affect us is a big question. And I think that it has to do with where music came from for us ultimately, which is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years ago, standing around a campfire and singing songs that we all made up together, that no one person wrote, but that a group of people wrote together. And, and there could be songs about hunting or songs about love or songs about taking care of children or, or whatever it is. But, you know, it used to be that no one got to be a musician. Everyone was just musicians you know, this idea of like someone being a great musician, someone being a, a music star is a new concept. And I think that 
melody writing just goes so far back in our DNA, in our cultures, and it's hard to even parse out why it's important. It's just a part of us. It's like, why are words important? Or why is your heart important <laughs> to keep pumping blood, you know? I know you recorded the score with an 82-piece orchestra at the Newman recording stage on the Fox lot, and you balance performing some of the instruments yourself with sitting in the booth just listening to the orchestra play out. How important is orchestration as part of your creative process? And much like a director judges the best take of a scene, how do you choose the best take of a musical performance? Orchestration is incredibly important to me. I feel that orchestration is part of the writing. I'm not the kind of uh, composer who will say like, here's a piano part, turn this into an orchestral piece. You know I mean? I'm, I'm very specific about, about orchestration. I think most people are. As far as how to pick a great take, I mean, I think it's all about the emotion. I would always want to go for the take that has the most emotion, that nails the feeling more than has no mistakes. You know, I, I can accept a mistake. Sometimes I like mistakes, you know? But yeah, what's important to me is the emotion. I did a lot of the guitar and accordion sitting at my desk working when I was writing. We, and we kept the vast majority of my accordion and guitar parts. You know, when I was recording them, I, I felt that, that there were demos. And then when we got to the stage, it was just like, oh no, these are the, the heart and soul of the score. It kind of sits in this stuff. We, we don't want to redo this. We just had to do a little bit of work cleaning up the audio a little bit to make it sound a little more professional because I'm just recording it with two microphones sitting in front of my desk. In a recording session, you might just put one microphone on a guitar player in the corner of a room. It's not like you're recording them with 15 microphones or anything. But because I did it while I was writing, there's a fair amount of editing. There's a fair amount of pitch shifting, time compressing, and we just had to do a little work to get it to sound as professional as it ended up sounding. My last question about Luca. You discuss how Go Find Out For Me is your favorite track on the album because it gradually grows and grows in terms of musical emotion. Could you talk about molding that final train station scene? Yeah, we tried many versions. That one didn't come quickly. It took a minute to figure that one out. And eventually it was like, okay, I think the deal with this is that it just has to build and build and build. And you, it has to keep reaching a place where you think, okay, well, this is where the melody is going to happen. Sort of like an EDM song where it's like the drop just never happens. You're like, oh, where's the drop? It's not, it's, it's supposed to come at this point. So like, I just wanted this feeling of every, of every downbeat. You were like, well, this is where the melody's going to come. Well, no, now this is where it has to come. And just not doing it until the very, very last second, which only lets us do half the melody. I was wanting to clear the whole thing for the main theme at the end. And it was like, Enrico came in and said, you know, there's not time for this entire main theme. Just keep building and building and building and building. And then, you know, if we can't fit the whole theme, then that's, that's what we're going to do. And when we got to that version of it, the final version, the melody just da, 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 just hits that final high, high note and just sits there. It doesn't do the rest of the melody because that's all there was room for. But I'm so happy with how it came out. My final question for today is about your musical legacy. One can't deny that the Dan Romer style has inspired and elevated a lot of stories about youthful adventure and loving life. About the emotion in your music, you had this to say, quote, I think there's something about the emotion of getting older that I fear and relate to, close quote. 
Because you didn't embrace a career in film composing until your late 20s, what have you learned about your musical identity and what is the conversation like with yourself in regards to the work you've already produced and the work you're still looking to produce? I think I've learned in the last few years, which is all, I mean, the last, you know, we've just been in COVID. I think I've learned that I love music and music's very important to me, but I, I need to feel more joy in my life as a human being and not become completely obsessed with making music. I need to be able to, uh, as, as they say, uh, like, you know, smell the flowers and I'm working on it and I think I'm getting there and I, and I feel like I'm getting happier every, every day. And I'll always love music. You know, the majority of the hours of my waking life will be spent making music, but it's nice to make sure that you have drinks with friends. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Dan for calling in to record this episode. To White Bear PR for setting the conversation up. And to my dear friend, Eric, with whom I share this podcast project for taking care of the final mixing. Dan's latest shows include a new season of The Good Doctor, currently streaming on Hulu, as well as Let the Right One In which you can find on Showtime. Please support us by subscribing to the show and leaving a review. It actually helps spread the word and allows for new listeners to discover the podcast. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.